All right, Wayne, we are here. And it's going to be a more jolly pod than normal because we're going to talk about United's victory over Villa and Old Trafford. It looked pretty dark at halftime. And yeah. we'll talk about the details of the 25% investment in the club, which was which was detailed in the SEC filings, which came out on Boxing Day. Anyway, how are you? Did you have a good Christmas? I, I had a good one. I'll, I will tell you one thing. I was sat at half time old trafford yesterday and i was thinking to myself this is it's quite miserable some wag is going to listen to the, who listens to this podcast is going to pull up a stat about how rare it is that i've been on this podcast after a win this season because it, I, I was trying to think and i couldn't think of one and i was thinking cuz it's probably a, a number more miserable than the Scott McTominay passing stats that you pull up. Um, and I was like, no, 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 no. So delighted that we won a game, delighted that we won it in the way that we won it, and delighted that yep. I avoid that catastrophic, complete, clean sweep of defeats. If it if it is, at least there's now a victory in there. Um, yeah, I can't so, remember yeah, either. It's, it's all good. Your, your record is worse than Eric Ten Hag's away at the top six. <laughs> it's <was> terrible. <laughs> and, you know, I, I'm... I do like to think I'm a glass or full, full person. And I noticed on the comments on the, on the last pod on, on YouTube, it said, Wayne, bless him, trying to be optimistic. <laughs> I was like, yep. And I couldn't think, how oh, is there an optimistic route out of this one? And there just wasn't. Oh, that's route for the American audience, route for the English audience. There. I've given you a couple bilingual. Oh, um, yeah. There you go. I'm, I'm bilingual um, as well. Well, I'm not really. <laughs> um, yeah, so, no, yeah, all good. All good Christmas, actually. Thank you. And, Very um, good. Obviously, these things, moods are, moods of middle-aged white men are, well, close to middle-aged, not quite middle-aged, nearing middle-aged white oh. men are so governed by our football team. That, um, it's sad, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, good spirits, yeah. What? What counts as middle-aged? Mid-40s. Is it? Oh, I don't know. I'm not, oh God! I'm, I I feel like because we're living longer, that has to be pushed out. I'm I'm just yeah. making the argument here. I I think the definition of middle middle age should be at least fifty, and we're all yeah. going to live no, till I'm, ninety I'm plus. So yeah, yeah, I, I'm with you. I'll keep pushing it up as long as I'm alive. Whether we'll so, see yeah. another title victory in our lifetimes is another question. I'm sure we will. Yeah. I'm sure we will. Now, now we're going to talk about it a bit later. But now that the Glazers are basically out of control. Uh, I, I will predict on this podcast here that the Glazers will never have full control of United ever again. And so that's something to celebrate. And I think a good reason to believe that the next title is closer than it was yesterday. Yes. Um, and nice. uh, I, I know there's a, there's a weird amount of negativity around this on the internet, uh, which we'll get into because I think a lot of it's misconception. A lot of it's driven by some fan groups who I think I, w I wish they'd reach out to me. I would give them a, uh, off the record briefing on how this works, but or any of the other people, Andy Green at Must, uh, any of the other people who really kind of understand finance, um, would uh, give some people some assurances about what's happening here. So, anyway, should we get into the Villa game first? Because yeah, I, I have to say, at, at, at half time, there was so I, get, I went to the supporters' branch. There was me and a friend and three other blokes <laughs> and the bar staff. Normally, there's like 100 people. It's really busy, but it's Christmas, middle of the day. Boxing Day is a working day in the US, so there's no one there. And believe me, you would not have found a collection of five more miserable blokes on the planet <laughs> than, 
at halftime yesterday. We were like, shall we just quit? Shall we just drink very heavily? What's the best course here? Anyway, I suspect it was probably similar at Old Trafford because the boos were quite loud, weren't they? They were, but I will say this. Uh, Newcastle in the League Cup, Bournemouth at home in, in the league. People were getting up and walking out in those games, obviously, quite early on in the second half. Quite a lot of people were getting up, but they weren't yesterday. There, right. And there was, um, yeah, there was. It was there, there was such a loud booing, and and sporadically through the first half as well, because it was uh, the latter part of the first half. There's a really intense booing. In fact, I think it was just before before we kicked off after the second goal. It was a very loud boo, like that went around the ground. And, but there was, it was like more of a frustration rather than a hopelessness yesterday. And there was like, you know, maybe it was. Christmas, the fact that people would refuse drinks in where they might not normally be on Boxing Day, and um, there was more yep. of a sort of that frustration of "Come on, let's get back into it." So when we scored early on in the second half and it was rubbed out, and then we scored again pretty soon after that, there was a, a real change in the atmosphere. And you do, like I said earlier about pinning your mood on football matches, you do try and work, and I'm probably trying to do it on this podcast, even though I feel like it's past that point. You try and put everything in the the idea of oh this is a turning point something different now yeah in, in a larger in a larger perspective and looking across the season in a broader way is there anything to take from it I don't know there are some things I guess but it's sometimes it's just about the individual moment and coming back to win three two in a football match when it sort of pretty miserable and we haven't seen a lot of high points this season. I say yeah. that as a someone who, by the way, home games this season, we have been treated to a comeback from 2-0 down, and we have been treated by treated to Twice, a two-goal yeah. in the last minute against was it Brentford? Brentford, yeah. yeah. Brentford in the last minute. And then to, to do to do that against a very good Villa team who, yeah, admittedly they were quite open, surprisingly open at 2-0. What can you do? Yeah. You've got to you've got to enjoy the moment. It, it Absolutely, and the boxing off. day crowd. Yeah, the Boston Day crowd at Old Trafford is always slightly different anyway because it is it is a kind of like family day out for a lot of people, yeah. I think. And that does that does change the atmosphere at, at, at OT a little bit, I think. Um, but yeah, look, we started the day, given that Luton scored a couple of times, with the second worst goal scored record in the Premier League. Yeah. <laughs> Not just amongst the top five or six, in the whole league. And not many of them have been scored at Old Trafford. It's it, it's pretty dire. And I'm not saying it's your fault, but it's a non-zero correlation between these two yeah. things. You yeah. coming on this pod and United not scoring. So it's good that... Uh, just just for actually, this season, by the way. Last season, there was a 100% trophy hole. So let, let's yeah. put <laughs> sw- right. swings and roundabouts. So... Yeah, I mean, you can understand United's frustration. I mean, starting yeah. starting the day in like seventh or whatever it was, hardly any goals scored, 13 games lost before Christmas, the uncertainty around the takeover, the massive injury crisis, increasingly question marks about Ten Hag and what he's doing and the kinds of decisions he's making and his response to his response to it all. And then, and and sorry, just to instant yeah. before we carry on, and to add to that, to compound matters, the general feeling that 
Aston Villa came into this game probably as favourites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Been in great form. Emery has built a side there that's not. It's kind of it feels atypical for him actually playing a high line, attacking football, not yeah. not the low block sort of defensive side we saw at uh, Villarreal. And anyway, so all those things kind of combined and, and 25 minutes in and United are 2-0 down and you can kind of understand why there's a lot of frustration. Funny thing is, when the teams were announced and the McTominay experiment had ended and, and Kobe Miney was there in central midfield and Ericsson was there and I was like, oh, this looks a bit less like Ten Hag chasing balance for the sake of dogmatic balance and more like playing your you know, strongest side. Garnacho yeah. down the right, Rashford down the left. I mean, he'd changed it around. I guess he had to in a, in a way, but we said that a lot of times this season. He has to change things and he kind of hasn't. And I was beginning to think the kind of dogmatic approach was, re- now, it's not quite Louis van Gaal levels, but it was kind of reaching that. And I was beginning to feel like that's his weakness. You know, yeah, it's I'd all actually... about the system. And, and I just like, yeah. And I, I mean, I was like, oh, this looks different. And I was actually feeling quite positive when I saw the team an hour before kickoff. Yeah, and then you see him line up, and particularly in the first half, and I think more more down to the fact that we went a couple of goals down and we started chasing. We still reverted to this uh, line that we do of five players trying to push their defence. Uh, like everyone pushes up, so Ericsson was in that front line. He wasn't sitting deep alongside Manu, which, on first glance, when you look at that team sheet and you see uh, see Ericsson, they say, "All right, we're going to bo- control some of the tempo." in that midfield, which we desperately need to do. And we desperately needed to do that against Aston Villa and a very good Aston Villa team that we talked about the strengths of last last time out and, and talking about the need for pragmatism. So the, he identified that with the selection. First of all, you think, all right, that's a good, that's a positive step. But then when we went 2-0 down, it was like reverting to type with everyone in unfamiliar areas, like Ericsson in areas where... He wouldn't affect the game anyway. Do you know, like playing as he was sometimes playing as the last man, that we're trying to press that or stretch the line at least. And it's so unfamiliar with the way that we do that sometimes. And it, it probably needed that half-time sort of reset. Sort of no, no way you're meant to be on the pitch, and and don't don't try and push the game for don't lose the game three nil. Trying to get one goal back, trying to turn it, trying to win it in five minutes, which. We, I mean, there seemed to be a general anxiety in the players to do that. And then once we did calm down and Ericsson did move back, it did give Bruno that space to, um, you know, we've talked about him on the last podcast. And I, yeah. I was saying before, before the game is that I, I was worried a little bit about Bruno that he, because he's become a little bit lost within the, that system that when we are chasing games, that's, not his ideal environment for us. He's not the ideal environment for any player, but he's a, a risk taker and he Can't sometimes take needless. Chaotic, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. But, but yesterday, with Ericsson, yesterday in the second half, I hasten to add, with Ericsson dropping a little bit further back, giving Bruno that freedom in that area, he, he was brilliant for about 25 minutes. He was unbelievable. Five through balls yesterday. It's a league yeah. high. And yeah, I, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I, I felt by Ten Hag not being so dogmatic in his approach with this game, like, like it, it, it's, it's, there's a, there's a, there's a dichotomy, right? So he's a pragmatist, yet he has some things that he's very dogmatic about. 
is very dogmatic about wanting to have a left footer on the left side of central defence for passing lanes and build up. He's been very dogmatic about how United build up from the back. And it is kind of amusing when United try to do it with the pass from the defender to the goalkeeper and then don't quite make it and launch it long anyway. You know, and I know what they're trying to do. And yet he's been kind of pragmatic playing McTominay in there as someone he thinks can grab him goals when they're not scoring goals yet. It, it destroying United's ability to play out through the back as a result. So there's this, there's this weird tension with some of the decision making. And I, I felt like he just got like, while not seeking the exact balance he wants yesterday, he actually came up with a more balanced side. And it wasn't even like United played terribly in that first half. They defended badly for the two goals. I mean, they're both absolutely horrendous, mm-hmm. aren't they? You know, like no one. No one challenging for that first goal and Anana just getting frozen. I'm not well, the, the, entirely blaming, entirely the, blaming the, him because that kind of ball does score goals, but like no were, one attacked the ball, did they? There was but, a lot of focus on the offside players. I forget who he was, who was standing offside and everyone was looking at it. So like flag him, flag him, flag him. And there was obviously, I think it's check, just very clever. It's just very clever. No, he, I mean, yeah, they, I, I they, know. Yeah. Yeah, Villa got a set piece coach and who, who was celebrating vociferously alongside Emery. He's the kind of shaggy haired bloke. Yeah. Uh, I forgot, I forget his name. And obviously, obviously that's a plan because he didn't get in the eye line of Anana. It's not deemed interfering yeah. um, or impacting the ability of the, pl- the player to play the ball. I f- forget how it's exactly phrased. I think interfering is not the words used, but. Anyway, so yeah, he's standing around Anana and then he runs the other way. Um, it's just, yeah, it's very, it's very clever. Uh, and then the second one, I kind of felt Varane can do better there. I mean, for someone who made so many clearances in the yeah. game against Liverpool, Varane, that was an uncharacteristic error because actually what you expect of him, his strengths are like box defending. Yeah. And yeah, so it kind of felt like that it wasn't brilliant from United in the first half. It was quite slow and they weren't able to penetrate Villa but it wasn't horrendous apart from those two pieces of defending but then we did get something very different in the second half didn't we yeah we did and I should say as well because I agree with that and by the way a good finish for the second goal he was completely unmarked to be able to do that Dendonka but it was a great finish nonetheless yeah but the the thing I always look at with the United team when we saw signs of vulnerability when we scored goals yesterday because we conceded chances straight after scoring the first and second goals, they had big chances to score again. Um, but the thing you look at with this United team consistently, I'm talking like through the last 24 months, so whenever it, we're in cultural reset mode or whatever, you look at reactions without needing the manager to, to do it. And too often this United team have been lacking. And maybe that's personnel, maybe it's systematic because we, we've we seen it from time to time that we do see reactions. We saw, saw it under Ole that we team sometimes they would react by themselves, sometimes they needed half time, but they were quite a good reactive side. And then under under Ten Hag so far, generally they've not been a very good reactive side. But yesterday, when we went 2 0 down, there was Rashford had a couple of good openings and, and the reaction was pretty good. Apart from, apart from when we we got a free kick, and it was soon after, so it was definitely in the first half. And Bruno went and stood in front of Martinez to 
to do the same trick, basically. He was basically, all he was doing was trying to more get in the eyeline of the referee to show what he was doing. And he's like, this is so pathetic. Like, he, I love Bruno. Like, like, I'll champion him or like in, in his unbelievable contribution to turning the game around yesterday. But there are some things that are just so pathetic like that because you are not helping the cause. You're not helping anything. Nah. You're not going to get that goal back at the other end. So he stood in front of Martinez and I think Ericsson hit the wall in the end and he just went out and he's just like, you've done nothing there. All you've done is aggravate people who were on your side, really, because the, the, the crowd get frustrated with the histrionics. And I know, I do remember him saying in an, uh, an interview that all that sort of stuff is just him. And you take, you know, like what we used to say about Rooney when I always, it was a big conversation. They used to say about Keane and they said it about Rooney and about Cantona that, but the Rooney one was funnily after the um, Northern Ireland one where he claps the referee who sent off Beckham a few yeah. years earlier. Yeah. And he was like, well, you can't take that out of Rooney because if you take that out of him, you take away off of the player who is. But I don't see that with Bruno. He can, I'm sure, get an amateur psychologist just to sit with him and just say, look, watch a game back and just say, look, these are the things that you do that don't help anything because you can't change a decision. And if you don't do that, it doesn't change your ability to, you know, you could sort of see with Rooney, he needed to be wound up sometimes. Yeah, I understand that. Cantona liked to play on the edge. That's that's what gave him defining moments in a way. But mm. Bruno, Bruno, what what are you doing? Like, we need, especially when you're the captain, lead by example. And he did in the second half. He did in the second half. I just found it hilarious that he was doing things that, well, when, when I'm trying to find humorous subplots in the first half, that was one. I thought, all right, I can have a little laugh at this while everyone else is getting frustrated. But generally, and Bruno was part of a good reaction in the first half, by the way, not just in the second. He, he did lead some of the good reaction in the first because we were getting back into it. Get into the game, into the flow of the game before the break. So yeah. that gives me a little more optimism because if you've got a group of players who can do that, who are motivated to do that, then first of all, it, it throws out the window the idea that they're not playing for the manager. Second of all, you've just got general greater belief in their propensity to do this kind of thing instead of needing a rocket up them, like needing to wait 45 minutes to change it. No, there's something there. There is something there to be built upon and yeah it's been lacking too often but yeah when like you were saying earlier sometimes the, this is the process so we've seen some of it is systematic and some of it is with the players and the closer that we get to a system that works the greater the capability of these players to do something which we all knew last season yeah um, but but yeah. it's all about the manager at that point at this point in time it's a, at this at this very point in time where we're getting a greater number of players back and the balance between what we're losing and what we, what we've lost from the squad and what what is there in the squad, is on the more positive side. Then the manager needs to be pulling out performance performances more than results. And yesterday we got a performance, which I is need both. Whole, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, it was interesting. Like even even at halftime with the United two 0 down, the amount of times that they'd managed to break through Villa's defensive line. Because Villa, partly because Villa were playing so high, and partly because we had we had a bit more balance in midfield, we weren't con- consistently outmanned in there. Was was kind of interesting. Didn't I? I think I might have tweeted at half time. It's amazing how many times United have broken through, and there were opportunities, weren't there, in that first half too. So it didn't feel like it was completely doomed. Other than 
Villa hadn't lost any points from a leading position this season uh, and don't concede that many goals. So apart from those two important things, and yeah, don't score already. Apart from yeah. those three important things, <laughs> it felt like there was some hope. And I mean, of course, we saw straight away after half time uh, the goal, you know, Garnacho's goal was correctly ruled out for offside. He just went a bit early or, or Rashford played the ball a bit early. One of the two of them, and he was half a yard offside. But uh, like that, we'd seen that move already, hadn't yeah. we, in the first half? And so it wasn't a huge surprise. And then they pulled it off again. So, yeah, it was there. There was hope there uh, on the Bruno stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm kind of amused by how child, childish he is. He really is very childish and petulant. I don't know if it takes away or adds anything to his game. I think the thing that matters most of all for Bruno is how. The system is built around him. Yeah. And when when we have McTominay in the side, and I don't want to feel like a sound like a broken record here complaining about him, but he gets in his zone all the time. And you end up with Bruno deeper, your most creative player, further away from goal than he should be, and a much less creative player much closer to goal. It's bonkers. And there were times that that did happen yesterday. And, of course, Ericsson can play there he's a much more creative player in that kind of free role but if you if you have the structure that there's protection behind and bruno's in the half spaces he's so dangerous yeah he's, he's still like his numbers are still great elite for expected assists chances created shot creating actions goal creating actions all of it right key passes five of them yesterday and you just want him there and the childish stuff i mean it is so stupid isn't it and, and like, it's, it's, I guess the, the, the most tangible thing is he managed to get booked yesterday for the arguing with the referee. Uh, I, th- I think that's, that's now six. He gets another two. He'll get another suspension. Yeah. It's just like, which no one is in missing crucial games. Exactly. When, yeah, when we, you're saying, yeah. is, it, is it a good or a bad thing? That's the bad thing. The bad side of it is that that's you, the bad you, thing. You know, yeah. yeah. But you do get that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, re- and referees have been directed to offer more uh, yellow cards for that kind of thing. I mean, he got, I think, am I right in saying he got booked for Martinez's challenge on Rashford for arguing the ref? Martinez, not even a foul for that one, by the way. That's any player other than a goalkeeper. I know this yeah. is a cliched thing to say, but any player other than the goalkeeper, that's a clear yellow card every single time. It doesn't matter that you got the ball when you clean out the man yeah. with both feet because you're not in control of what you're doing. And he clearly wasn't in control there. That's, that's always a foul. Goalkeepers are allowed to do that. Yeah, and it's dangerous as well. It's like it was like the um, the Nunes one at Johnny Evans at Anfield, where it's just clearly dangerous. What you you are doing something like you're thinking about blocking off the opponent and hurting the opponent in a way, and that was reckless enough in my eyes. And yeah, all right, I'm a United fan and I. I have no particular love for Martinez. And there's another thing about him. I, I, I dislike him anyway, and I know he's one of those players that if he was in your team, you'd love him, that kind of thing. Like our, our own Martinez is the same. But So I, there was a game a couple of years ago when Bruno missed the penalty against them in the last minute at Old Trafford, and, and he was celebrating in front of the Stratford end. And he's, a, he's one of the worst for time wasting. Now, he, he wasn't that bad yesterday. But the challenge riled a lot of people up. And so for a player who enjoys incurring the wrath of rival fans, it was quite nice to, to win. And then suddenly the speed in his play 
became quite yeah, big yeah. And, <laughs> which is always is always humorous. And there are some obvious things we're going to be talking about, I guess, as we as we progress with the pod. I do want to mention one non-obvious thing, which was absolutely beautiful. Menu's pass to Garnacho just before the second goal. There was a lot of chaos going on in the midfield, and he just picked this peach of a ball out. They just rolled it. It was only maybe a 10-yard ball, but it opened up the play completely because Garnacho then spreads it and he eventually gets the return to score. And there were some great passes, mostly by Bruno and a couple by Rashford as well because I think it's fair, yeah. fair to, to mention those um, good ones from Rashford. Um, he, you know, Maybe a 6 out of 10 game overall for Rashford, but some crucial Involvements. Well, it felt like there was a, just a little spark of something from Rashford yesterday. You know, yeah. obviously in his more comfortable position, which might be instructive. I hope for Ten Hag. I mean, like if you want to get him back into form, play him in the position he most wants to play. If we're going to do that, and then Garnacho being on the right didn't appear to impact him. Obviously, got the two goals. He can still get into dangerous positions. I don't know that he really wants to go on the outside all the time. I think he, he does want to play in both half spaces and come inside, which makes does make United narrow. It is a yeah. risk. He's just much more of a goal threat than Anthony. And when we're short goals, that's that's kind of important, you know. And also he gets much closer to Hoyland than Anthony does as well. Yeah. And so it's it's kind of it'd be interesting to see how Ten Hag sees that, whether he sees that as a one off. Or he actually thinks, okay, these are the players that are, are more dangerous. In a side that's not scoring enough goals, to have the kind of balance in midfield with a, a two in the pivot, at least closer to a two in the pivot, yeah. um, whatever balance of that two is. We might Menu in there who finds the right passes almost all of the time. Just the maturity in his game. It's kind of it's kind of interesting, isn't he? Because he's sort of been playing as a deeper player, but really he doesn't play like that. He plays more like a Tony Cruz or Pedri or something yeah, like that. You know, yeah, so finds the angles in his passes. Yeah. yeah, all the time. Yeah, love him, love him. Don't want to hype him up too much, but he could be the greatest. No, <laughs> it's like he's yeah, he's just already a very very good player at Premier League level. And it, it just, yeah, I I don't know. I wonder whether this Ten Hag will think okay, maybe maybe just playing the players in the right positions or they're in form or just finding the balance that way rather than saying I dogmatically have to have the players I want in these positions. So yeah. we'll okay, see well, whether that's instructive. The the Garnacho thing was a good call. Like you said, um, obviously it was going to be interesting to see how he impacted the game and it was a massive impact. Um, dangerous throw, not just not just with the goals. Um, obviously the disallow goal, but he, he, he generally looked like a threat. And obviously, like I said, it... it Provides the opportunity for Rashford to play himself back into form. Now, did, when you've got fluid front players like that, it, and I'm not comparing them in terms of ability, but you remember Rooney and Ronaldo, it took a long time. And I, by a long time, it took, we're talking three years, two to three years of those two players playing together and still trying to find the right kind of connection where they could create damage on the pitch. And, it, you, you know, you mentioned there, would that be a one-off or are we going to see more of that? I was then, while you were saying that, I was thinking, is there a one-off comparison I could think of? Because I, I was going to bring up the Rooney and Ronaldo point. And yeah, because Rooney and Ronaldo, in terms of the bigger picture thing, they were, they, Ro- Ronaldo was playing from both sides. And I'm talking 
primarily about the spring of 2007 when Ronaldo really blossomed and he, he right. became this world star. Um, so Ronaldo was moving around from either side at that point. He wasn't just staying on the right or staying on the left because he scored the winner against Fulham from the left. He and Giggs played in that game, so he scored the first goal. So there was definitely some movement around. I don't have the the game to hand or, or to quick memory, so I can't categorically say who played where. I just know where the goals mm-hmm. were scored from. And then later on in that season, only a few weeks later, mind we played Roma, and that was the outlier. In it was a seven-one, and you don't yeah. really get a performance like that. But Ronaldo played from the right. And that was basically Ronaldo's position then was like a false striker from the right for the next year. Mm. Now, we didn't play that system. We didn't play the 4-2-3-1 for the next 18 months. But Ronaldo operated in that system for the next 18 months. And then we changed the system around. So we didn't see the Romas every week, but we saw better football, particularly through the autumn when, when Tevez signed. All of that to say that really it's Garnacho's position that seems like it's the key one because obviously the the key issue for United has been the right-hand side and productivity on that right-hand side. And you've been more complimentary towards Anthony than I have in terms of what he brings to the team. Uh, You know, his defensive work and the work that Ten Hag sees, and I, I definitely agree with that. But obviously for any front player of the front three players, you want productivity and goals and assists. Yeah. And if Garnacho, if Garnacho yeah. does that, like he did yesterday, then that is a massive step forward for this team because obviously we've got talent from the left and Rashford can play in that area and he can cause unbelievable damage. And if you've got a player like Garnacho who is already scoring and assisting, you almost saw it yesterday, and I don't want to be premature because it is only one game, and it isn't. A, it is like a Roma seven-one, which might not be repeated in in the next weeks and, and games. But you almost saw, even from Hoyland scoring and Rashford just playing a little bit better, the liberating effect that one player doing what he's supposed to be doing in one area yeah. can do to the other players, and that's a, a definite reason for excitement. Oh, for sure, yeah. And I mean, it's what I was saying earlier, really. The, it may not be the perfect balance of where each of the players wants to play with Garnacho on the right, but it's good, definitely more goal threat. I mean, Anthony yeah. has proven over a year and a half now with the club that he, there's almost nothing there. He doesn't attack space. He wants the ball to feet all the time. He does carry it well and he does, he does do his defensive work well, but it's not enough. It's not enough for an 86 million pound forward. Although we know that United you know, paid three times, thanks to Adam Crafton's reporting, three times as much as they had planned to on Anthony. Absolutely fucking bonkers. Of, more, of which more to come in this pod discussion of, that is. But uh, yeah, like getting it for a low goal scoring team, getting players both closer to Hoyland, but into threatening areas, just really important. I mean, the other thing, you know, Hoyland scored yesterday and you saw what it meant to him. Late goal. Nice finish as well, instinctive. Oh, beautiful, and he, yeah. He, yeah. He, he was trying hard, really hard yesterday to get into the right positions. There's been a lot of struggle, I think, with United to try and find him. Um, he doesn't get many passes, so I don't think that's just about him because his movement's actually pretty good. And his, his expected goals this season across all competitions is 6.7. He's now got six goals. So it's a lot of narrative around his lack of goal scoring in the Premier League. Actually, the biggest problem is he's not 
it's not it's number of shots he takes and and the uh, uh, chance creation for him. That's the biggest problem. Yeah. You know, I think if you if they find a way of getting players closer to him, so he's get more chances, especially getting Bruno higher up the pitch. I think he'll get goals. Um, and and then maybe that balance is right. Rashford, Garnacho, Hoyland, Anthony for when we need that kind of player in the side, but not a guaranteed every week, please mm. and thank you, which is something remarkable for an £86 million player to be thinking. Obviously, Sancho's never going to play for the club again unless Ten Hag gets hacked first, which I, I wouldn't bank on if I was Sancho. And they'll find an exit for Martial now. We have new people in charge of, of that part of the football club. So it's United aren't going to score tons and tons of goals this season, but there's there's some reason to be hopeful. It, that may be specific yesterday to Villa and Villa taking a lot of risks. Emery definitely wasn't happy. Happy, was he? Happy? Happy on the sidelines there with, with exactly how they defended that lead. And I think... It didn't feel very Emery-like, did it? To mm. give United so many opportunities. But we can take that forward. We have to. I mean, I know we've said this before this season. Every time there's a some kind of positive result, we feel like we go back a few steps. But, yeah, we have to take that forward. And now with Casemiro, he's probably another two weeks away. But Martinez is really close. He's been training for two weeks now. We're... Like you can imagine, we're very close. Luke Shaw had a minor problem, so we got very close to having a preferred back line. I don't know how far Harry is away, but we got Martinez, Varane, Dallo, Wambazaka, Shaw at the back. Probably Mainu, Casemiro, and Bruno. Your midfield three, yeah. maybe, maybe. Like we'll see. But that's a nice balance to it, isn't it? And some some balance of the forwards we've been talking about, and he's just much closer to being the kind of side that but Ten Hag wants we saw flashes of last season and will be just much more competitive in the second half of the season. Touch wood. Yeah. I'm, no, I'm, I'm touching not. my head for the podcast listeners, but it's like touch wood, that's, that's the positive story. Yeah. Of course, we could get smashed by Forrest in a couple of days' time and feel very <laughs> negative again. Who knows? <laughs> no, but I, I mean, that is that you've got to invest in the hope in some way and, and that, that's that's the way isn't it really I, I do think it's a sensible sensible way to look at it especially considering there's been so much negative plenty to pick from really in, in terms of where we're going wrong so to, to look at something and see there's a semblance of a plan I, I don't know. There's still not enough there that convinces me with the manager in terms of... Because I will say this, to counter all the positivity that's been on this. Uh, don't worry, listeners, more positivity is coming. Ed's got that in buckets for you. I don't, and I'm going to rain on the parade a little bit. At half-time yesterday, I was I was worried. I was... I am generally always behind the manager, and I, I still was behind the manager, but I did start to have my doubts whether or not he had the capability to turn it around because I was looking at that team For and sure, thinking yeah. they're likelier, in my mind, they were likelier to go down 3-0 than to pull it back. That's what it felt like at half-time, especially when we didn't make a change at half-time. And then when we scored the goals and immediately conceded chances, you have that suspicion about their vulnerability of confidence. But, like you said, player by player, brick by brick, the team is is getting towards where it needs to be 
And each of those players that you mentioned, including Casemiro, who has had a rough time of it this, this season, but imagine Casemiro alongside Mane, we could give him a new lease of life. Have Bruno just in his area where he's supposed to be doing the things that he's supposed to be doing. Have the pace and the penetration around him. Because really, what you've seen from the front three players, Rashford should have grown out of it, but he hasn't. And that's fine because, and what I'm talking about is being profligate in front of goal. Now, you you are going to get that from Hoyland and Garnacho. They're going to break through and they're going to miss chances. Rashford, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about wastage, but he scored 30 goals last season. So if you get 30 and, and wastage on top of that, then that's still not a bad thing. I can remember Rooney scoring 30 goals a season and missing sitters. I mean, you don't mm-hmm. mind so long as they're scoring the 30. So as long as we're doing that, a bit, but what like you were saying earlier, anyway, before we move on, that we're saying brick by brick, we're getting there and there is reason to be positive. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully. Okay. Okay. When he picks Amrabat and McTominay and Martial yeah. for the game against Forest, <laughs> I may, don't, I may don't, lose, don't. I may, I may lose my shit, but yeah, we'll see. All right, that's the Villa game. We're going to move on to some of the takeover stuff and then get to some New Year's resolutions or something like that, I think. All right. So we talked a bit about the takeover on the last pod. The, the, it, it was a little odd because I was on there. It's a, a system called EDGAR, which is what the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission, it's the regulatory body that covers uh, stock markets and uh, company takeovers and stuff like that in the US because United are listed on New York Stock Exchange. I was waiting, they have a system called Edgar. I was waiting, refreshing the page on the United's page. Like, why hasn't the details of the transaction dropped? Because we got the, we got the press release and the IR statement on Christmas Eve. We talked about it last time. So anyway, it finally did drop yesterday. And of course, we're all pouring through that. And I took a few notes and uh, a few people have done, uh, I think Swedish Rumble and uh, Muppeteers and a few other people have done sort of, longer threads um breaking down what exactly is in this statement but i thought we could talk a little bit about what the implications were because there's some really interesting stuff in there apart from the the kind of nerdy m&a stuff and it's really it's just language honestly you know it's like i'm used to dealing with it but you know it feels complex and you can kind of understand with the amount of provisions in this deal why it's taken so long to negotiate they've been negotiating this since may apparently uh, but perhaps I go through the the kind of key points, and we can discuss what what it might mean. So, firstly, as we said last time, it, it's a twenty five percent equity stake. It's it's equally split between A and B class shares. A are public, B are the special ten uh, x voting right shares that the Glazers own. All six of the Glazer children, the shareholders in United, are diluting down equally. They don't have equal percentage ownership. But they have diluted this this sale down equally. Trawlers Limited, which is the vehicle that Ratcliffe and Ineos are using, will now own 25% of the club when this closes, and it will close when the Premier League gives approval, which should be should be should not take two years like it did with Newcastle. It's not very controversial this one. So um, there's that. The 300 million that we mentioned last time dollars of extra investment is a convertible um, investment. 200 million straight away. 100 million by the end of uh, 2024 it converts to equity so Ratcliffe will own just over 29% of the club at that stage by the end of 24 it could happen at any point in 24 it doesn't have to be on December the 31st or anything like that um 
Ineos have what is called consent rights in there, but basically that means there will be no dividends paid over the next three years. Three years is a kind of crucial timeline for all of this to unfold. But Ineos have to consent to dividends being paid. Ratcliffe has said previously he doesn't believe that football clubs should pay dividends. He sees himself as a custodian, a steward of a of a social institution, not there to make profit out of. It's completely, it's 180 degrees around in terms of like how you view a football club. The Glazers obviously see it as a way to make themselves money personally. And like whether, like Ratcliffe holds none of my personal values. <laughs> like his company is a mass polluter. He's a Brex- Brexiteer and a Tory and he lives as a non-dom in Monaco. But I think he's going to be a much better owner of Manchester United than than the Glazers simply because he sees himself as a custodian. I think that's just so crucial. He's now the largest single shareholder or in the OSR, Trawlers Limited are, I should say, in United by quite some distance, although the Glazer family combined have more shares and more voting power than United. There's consent rights for the next year after the close of this deal over any future shareholders. So basically, he has first right of refusal on anything sold for the next year, but, but then it's fixed in for the next three after that, like fixed price. He has first offer rights over any B share sales. So I'm just looking at my notes here. He, the Glazers can't back out of this now. And if they do, this is going to cost the club, <laughs> not them, Manchester United PLC, $66 million. Two different blocks, one that covers costs and one that covers a, it's basically a fee, penalty fee. If the Glazers want to sell the club in full or their interests in full in any point in the next three years, Ineos have first right of refusal to match. And if they don't match, this is the drag along rights I was tweeting about, they have to sell. And why that's important, I think it's not because somehow Ratcliffe can force the Glazers into a sale. He can't do that. But it's basically signaling that the Glazers are, it's the clock is ticking. From this moment onwards, they're ticking, and at some point between the next eighteen months and next and three years out from here, they will sell in full. I'm I'm pretty confident about that. Could be proven wrong, but I don't think so. I think this is them signalling that they are going to sell. Why they didn't just sell it all? I don't know. Well, maybe you'll find in the fullness of time. The really key bit. So that's all the technical financial stuff, right? So by the end of next year. Ineos will own 29% of the club. The Glazers between them will own just a touch over 50% with more voting rights. They've basically relinquished control over the important stuff to us as fans. And so the the sporting control provisions, which is kind of really interesting how it's structured because you wouldn't... I had a lot of skepticism about this, but it's yeah. it's into the sale agreement, right? It's written into the sale agreement exactly how this will work. So... From this moment onwards, even though it hasn't closed, they have full say over any sporting decisions, and that is manager, coaches, sporting director, transfers, contracts, um, structure of the men's team, the women's team, and all academies, right? So every sporting decision is now controlled by Ineos, not the Glazers. They have rel- relinquished control of the thing that is important to us. Now, there's a question mark about how the budget is is decided. Ineos will now have two seats on the board. And obviously they can be outvoted as a block. They'll also have two seats on the, the club board, which is effectively a, an, a, a subcommittee of the parent company. Um, 
on, on sporting matters and, and control over sporting matters. And it's written down in real detail. Like, so that cannot change. There has to be a plan. If there are already plans, they can be executed with consent. Brailsford and Jean-Claude Blanc will all, are already in there looking at the details of this. So that is the thing we wanted, right? No longer is Joel Glazer in charge of saying yes or no on any sporting matters, on the training facilities, on transfers in and out, on new contracts, on whether the women's team buy a player or whether there's transfer to the men's team. None of that is in his control anymore. Um, and, and so I'm trying to think, what else haven't I covered here? So the initial purchase, the 300 million extra is going to convert. Dragalon rights, I think, has the clock ticking. There's a bunch of first preference rights I talked about. Liquidation preferences. So if, if it gets sold, Ratcliffe has first right to, 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 to buy into the club. I I think this basically says within three years, it'll be 100% owned by Ineos or close. Yeah. Pretty much close to it. They'll take the club private. And they see themselves as custodians. I think that, that is all really, really good. It's not the Glazers fucking off permanently right now, but it's as close as we were ever going to get with what they were going to accept. Yeah, so, there you go. Very, Hopefully, I've summarised that well. That was brilliantly done, so, that Ed. There, there are two obvious. There are two obvious points. Not, not to anything that you said, but kind of like not side issues, but sort of like short term and longer term issues. The one is obviously the debt that's leveraged on the club, but that will be a formality yeah. with the with the longer term part of the Ineos takeover. Anyway, with that being a fo- like a supposed or like let's see an apparent formality in that three year period, and then the the other part is yeah, there's nothing in there about debt at all. It, yeah. It's not going to get paid off until full change of ownership. Yeah. And it may not even then. I mean, Ineos run themselves with a lot of debt. It's when you're a company making a lot of money, you can run it. It can it can be quite cheap and quite cost effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I mean is like in terms of it's, it's had operational impacts on United over the last two or three years. It's quite a significant operational impacts. Whereas moving forward, that wouldn't be the case because of Ineos as, as their, their I, I would expect so, yeah. Um, I'd expect the, so. There's nothing in this sale agreement that says that, but I'd expect so. Yeah. And the other, the other thing is the club's ten ogs capability to operate in the transfer market within the next eighteen months, and you know, with the transfer de- debt and everything like that. Which I, I guess that, that'll become more clear as as time comes on in terms of the equity that yeah. Ratcliffe and Ineos are putting in, how much that can be fronted. I know you've touched in the past and I don't understand it 100% but in terms of like the £100 million loss that they can afford to operate at well obviously there's the debts on the transfers of Casemiro and Anthony and other players that are outstanding yeah. which uh, yeah, again it's not going to impact that at all yeah but the funny thing is that it says in the filing can be used for operational expenses right so although this was kind of trailed as the 300 million dollars 250 million pounds or so being for infrastructure that may be what they're earmarking it for it's not actually what it says in the filing so it may well be i i would be very surprised if they spend it on transfers basically just because united's ffp position like united's cash position is an issue but the ffp or profit and sustainability position is is tougher right so under premier league rules they can put 105 million in. In fact, they can, in, uh, d- depending on how it's done, they can put even more than that in, obviously. Yeah. 105 million, 90 million, if it's converted to equity, will count against FFP over a three year rolling period. So that's just to say they could 
go to go towards profit and sustain it could their equity investment could go towards profit and sustainability of the club once i don't think they'll do that i think they'll still run on uh, as close to the ffp ceiling as they possibly can which is what they've been doing i would not expect some massive transfer this january as a result Mm. but they will look at I, i they might do things that the glazers were not prepared to do and this is just pure speculation but they may take a, a slightly different view of how they see contracts running down, like it not being an asset, but actually being a sporting cost, which is very, very true, right? So having players that the manager doesn't want on the books just because you take a, an impairment charge on on selling that player at a loss or subsidizing their wages or like letting them go for free so they can maintain their wage position or something like that, like that, that would not happen under the Glazers. But it might happen under Ineos because they're taking a different view of what sporting needs are versus financial needs. We'll see. That's speculation. But yeah. Um, anyway, my view is this is all very, very good and it's the best we could have got. What, what it doesn't do is it doesn't guarantee that the Glazers will, will go at all. I think, I think the fact that they've got timelines in there for guaranteed value means that they probably will almost certainly they're they're guaranteeing this 33 dollars a share price which is hundreds of millions more than we think was offered by the qataris why i don't know because i was 100 percent convinced that was a state bid that's just how it kind of works the state and the private economy are intertwined um in qatar i don't know why they didn't go higher i don't political reasons or whatever i don't know it just didn't um and so this was the best deal it's also like become abundantly clear, given that this has been negotiated for months, that that the last six months of uh, people posting on Twitter that the imminent sale to the Qataris, it's just weird. I mean, was stuff coming out of their PR team? It's that if, if you if you read some of the messages from some of the reporters um, on Twitter uh, who followed this closely, it seems like the Qataris PR team was briefing that. A full sale is imminent for months after that was dead as a concept. Yeah. And the Glazers are only willing to countenance a partial sale. It's so weird, and I don't know why. But anyway, the point I was making is this does not guarantee the Glazers are going. They could they could wait out their three years, wait out the time of they get the guaranteed price. Ratcliffe after that will still have first preference. There's no time limit on that. He'll still have first pre- preference and there won't be a guaranteed price. So, and if you look at the history of United's share price since 2012, like it's never really been much higher than 22, 23. And that was just during the early part of the sales process, right? So that tells me they would give up hundreds of millions of pounds potentially in the sales price by just waiting out. I don't think it's going to happen. There's just no guarantee. There's no yeah. guarantee that Ratcliffe and Ineos will become 100% owners of the club. I just think all the signs point to that being the case, and this is what is going to happen. What I don't know is why the Glazers wanted to structure it this way, because there's a time value of money. Like, money into their pockets right now is worth more than money in three years' time, because they can invest it in something else. They can do things with it like they enjoy, like, I don't know, funding Trump's 2024 presidential bid because they like to do that kind of thing or sending money to political parties abroad, which they also do. 
their particular causes that they support or spending it on another house in Florida or whatever, or investing it somewhere else, well, the, right? Like the, money the, is more valuable now than it would be in the future. The point is, I don't know why they have to. The yeah. point is, though, Ed, is, is that answers the question of why it's taken this long to do is because the answers are complicated and we don't know. It's Whereas, really complicated, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's a complicated deal and it's complicated between the family members. Yeah. So, and that's why it's taken so long and why it's been so frustrating. And I think Ratcliffe has probably got to the best deal that he could possibly get to, I suspect, with what the Glazers would allow because they owned the shares, sadly. And they still do have control. They don't, they don't have anywhere near as much operational control as they had, but they have control over their own shares. So they have control over the destiny of who owns this club. I just suspect, given the way this is structured, that they are setting a future price, and that future will be within the next three years. Um, unless someone comes along and offers more, which they could do, but they weren't prepared to this time round. Maybe they're betting on the global economy getting better and money getting, becoming free again and, and uh, all these private equity firms are coming, but I doubt it. Yeah. It's not that price. Well, what no. we, we should all do is follow Sky Cavi for, for more, because I'm sure he'll... he'll oh, yeah, as it, I, 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 he's blocked me. He, he blocked me when I said on Twitter that journalism used to be a noble profession. I don't know why he took offence to that, but yeah, so I haven't seen what he's had to say about this deal. <laughs> Yeah, he seemed so certain that that Sheikh Jassim's bid was going to be going to be the winner. Yeah, Odd. I, yeah, he's um. We you alluded to it earlier the misinformation that's been spread for for six months by I think something like an institution like Manchester United Football Club. If you're not informed, and he wasn't, I think the the level and the the specificity, specificity, specificity of his misinformation say. pretty much tells us that he, he was misinformed. And you would think, because I always think, like, you know, like, you know, like a diorama, like these things are good case studies for like, for misinformation, for what not to believe. But you know that in two weeks, He's going to be tweeting transfer nonsense. It may be in two days yeah. that we trans- transfer nonsense. And he's already proven to not be, to not have the information. And you're still going to follow him and try and engage in that information. Oh, tell us more, Cave. Tell us more. He'll be out. Well, uh, my understanding is that I understand th- this thing that I've just read on Twitter and it may or may not be true, but I'm telling you that it's true. And but I was just yeah, it felt it felt more than that, didn't it? Though with him, it felt like there was because because the Qataris have engaged a few PR firms. They did they had a, quite a few UK based PR firms for the World Cup, and and they, it feels like there's been some cash floating around. But, uh, yeah. and, well, I I, I I can't name any names, but I was told by someone that certain media personalities were being were were on retainer. Well, right? so yeah, that that's that could be true. It could be. Another avenue of misinformation. I won't speculate. I've yeah, yeah, could that. be. But what I will say, speculating, is... I don't know. Although I would, I would very much appreciate the Sky Cave testing out my First Amendment rights. So you know, <laughs> if, if he feels like it, <laughs> yeah, I do. I would. What I would say is, it's <clears throat> incredibly irresponsible of someone in his position. I will say, journalist, 
which is still a no- the profession itself is noble. The the activists in the, the profession, of it, yes. yeah, maybe may not. But so um, many of them are. By the way, I, I would say all of yes. them are. Why not? Why not? I'm in a I'm in a very jovial Christmas spirit. Manchester United won three two after nice. being two 0 down. Now, what I will say is for a noble journalist. It's incredibly irresponsible to be using your platform, which you you say something on a, a television news network, which causes a little ticker to turn yellow, which uh, provides imminent information about a, a global institution, which affects prices that go up and down, affects people's ability to spend money because they invest and withdraw at, at different rates. It's so irresponsible to do that. And now, I, all right, if people choose to believe this kind of stuff, then that's on them. I just think, as an individual, and I did, t- I've tweeted it. I may be blocked now, Red, but it, there, there's probably some kind of interim period where you were blocked and I wasn't. Where I, I tried my best to appeal to his better nature as a human being to sort of say, like, I don't think human beings should be doing this kind of thing, Cave. <laughs> but not in that way. Yeah. I was kind of like, could you elaborate more on the source of this information? Not in the way that, you know, a journalist doesn't reveal his sources. I know a good journalist wouldn't do that, but give us a little bit m- more meat on the bone that is better than the regurgitated time, I, I don't know, Qatari Times thing that I've just read on the United Report. Twitter account. If you can give me a little bit meat on the more beat on the bone than that, Cave, then I will believe that you are honourable in what you are saying. Um, but he never did offer that. He doesn't have to because he's you know he's a he's a big star reporting on international television. He doesn't have time for a small fry like me. But he, he should really have considered it a service to his profession, profession and the people that he was serving with this information because I think. Um, he looks a little bit silly now, and I just hope that in this incoming four to six weeks, not with every football club, Ed, but just with matters relating to Manchester United, if you follow Sky Cave, perhaps take his reportings with a pinch of salt. <laughs> I actually should with all of it, yeah. I've, no- I've noticed that Fabrizio is uh, tweeting regularly about Ronaldo and how many goals he scored in Saudi Arabia at the moment, which is very, very odd. I'm like, what? Is is this news? It's just like, maybe just gets a lot of engagement and the blue tick uh, is paying him handsomely at the moment. I don't know. Uh, Some very odd things happening in uh, that noble profession that is uh, journalism. I'm not a journalist. I never had any inside information on uh, any of this. Um, some people have uh, worked that better than I have. Uh, what I do know is how these deals are done. And so hopefully I've managed to give some insight into like what this means and the structure over the last few months. And, you know, I feel quite good about this. Like from being, from being points over the last 18 years of Glazer ownership, where I was just like, if United lose, does this make it closer to the Glazers fucking off? Would this be better? Like, like, like having to feel like that. And I never really got to that point, but you know, many people did. And I'm a shareholder in FC United, by the way. I was like one of the earliest. My £200 investment, I don't think it's going to make me a millionaire. <laughs> but it was just a sign to say, hey, this is good what they're doing. So like many times I felt over the last 18 years that just pretty despondent and hating what football had become. 
but particularly hating what the Glazers had done to United. They have been the worst possible owners. They have been. It, it was not catastrophic to the existence of Manchester United that I felt at points when United were paying fourteen percent interest on the debt, and it wasn't clear that there was a pathway out of that. They were saved, the Glazers. They did not have any special insight into like BT and Sky going at it for years. So those massive increases in domestic television rights or the global market for the Premier League rising. That was not the Glazers did that or the global market for sponsorship rising. That was not, and it was not United uniquely that managed to achieve that kind of global sponsorship rights either. In fact, other clubs have well outpaced us now. Um, so they got lucky. So there were times I thought it might be existential. And uh, it so it didn't happen. That didn't happen. But they have been as destructive as owners of Manchester United as it was possible to be. And they now no longer have control over the most important parts of the club. So that's a fucking great day. That's a, that's a great day. And whatever I personally think of, of Brexit Jim's policies... Doesn't matter because I think he's going to be a far superior owner of this club, as he puts it, custodian than than the Glazers have ever been. He on day one he's put more money into this club than the Glazers have over eighteen years. Fact, right? On day one, so this is this is a very good day. There's a pathway to them being out and and a much better ownership group being in place. That's good. Not perfect, but that's good. It can only be a positive thing when capital's put into the club. I am I am personally grateful for you taking the time to sort of simplify it in a way that can provide more optimism. And really, there's a thing about football where, and we I've said this many times on this podcast, uh, where so much of it is governed by results and performances that all the extra stuff is... Yeah, either compound it compounds it when things are bad, or it, it can relieve it when things are better. Do you know what I mean? And so, if you get good news, like obviously, like capital injection and clarity over where the club are actually moving and some some kind of direction in terms of, first of all, communication from Ratcliffe to was it MUS? Was it most the most? Yeah, immediately communicated with them. All, all of these are positive things, and so when you win a game of football, and I know it's now become the secondary issue because like, what you talk about is so important. And but when when you win a, a game of football at a time of year where we're at and everything like that, then the it, these little things can be. We're talking brick, brick by brick in the team earlier, weren't we? But brick by brick in terms of the club and moving forward, these yeah. little things can be massive incentivizer. You know, like you know. Fergie was the best at this and explaining it. Confidence in football is the probably the easiest thing to destroy and the hardest thing to build. It's like a lightning bolt when when it strikes, you want to catch hold of it for as long as you can. And you can't do that on the back of a three two win over Aston Villa. Oh, by the way, I mean if we're doing stats, how good is it? If you want a team to be two 0 down against Manchester United's history, I don't know how many times, but there's got to be at least yeah, yeah. a couple of times. You'd be like, "All right, it's Aston Villa, lads, it's Spurs, lads, it's Villa." And I, I, I'm, if there's any Villa fans listening to this, I don't mean that as dismissive. I, I'm saying this with full relief of the fact that we won a game of football against you for the last podcast where I was praising you to High Evans, and yesterday outside Old Trafford 
telling everyone that you were the favourites to win the game and and then praising John McGinn as a great midfielder and then cursing the fact that I'd done that 30 minutes in. Hmm. But, but the po- positivity that you get from all of the stuff that you've just been talking about and, and winning games of football, it's enough, Ed, surely, to keep me off the podcast for another five months just in case. Like, <laughs> another, not, Unfortunately, listeners and viewers, I, that's not going to happen. I've I've got Ed on Class A and Class B shares for the podcast. So, <laughs> Is that right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah, yeah. All right. Should we talk about some New Year's resolutions? I mean, what does like we've? I guess, I guess like this is going to be the year of of a year of change. I think in terms of yeah, United. I mean, there's going to be a wholesale change in the football department. I'm pretty sure about that. We're going to get a new sporting director. Has Murtar officially gone? I mean, it was kind of widely reported. I don't know that he's going. Said it. I mean, the not Richard Arnold thing but, was, no. but um, yeah, and, yeah. And the Richard Arnold thing, the fact that that was communicated in a, a way makes me think that you'd be waiting for something to happen with Murtar. We'll, we'll, we'll get we'll, okay. So we'll wait for the official confirmation of that. But I think it's it's widely expected that he's going to leave. We'll get a new sporting team in there, a, a new managing director. I don't know exactly how they're going to structure that. Patrick Stewart. Is still the interim CEO, so we'll, we'll get a new CEO, some kind of general manager of the sporting department, new composition of the, the, the football club board. And so that, that gives us a kind of platform to think about 2024. Yeah. So what, and, 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 and then like all the players coming back and, and I, I'm very confident that Ten Hag will, st- unless there's something horrendously catastrophic happens yeah. over the next few weeks, that Ten Hag will see out the season. Then we'll see. That'll be a time to evaluate. But uh, so, you know, what what are our New Year's resolutions for, for the club and the team? My my one, my one wish, well, what I want Ten to do over this six-month period, assuming, of course, and I, and I want this to be the case, that he maintains his role as manager because I think we've weathered an incredibly rough period. I mean, if you can survive losing 7-0 to Liverpool in any weather, fair or Otherwise, yeah, all right, you're better off doing it after you've just won a trophy because that's one of those untenable positions that we've talked about in previous podcasts. Yeah. Losing 3-0 at home to Bournemouth, losing 3-0 at home to Newcastle in the League Cup and losing 1-0 to Bayern Munich at home and losing a number of home games. All right, that run of fixtures and performances could have been untenable and I don't think there would have been many people arguing, having a really compelling case. I mean, I've tried to argue it on this podcast in a positive way, but I've always generally come back to the argument that I've used for every single manager is that we've never gone over this little bump. And now we are at the point where we're pretty much over that bump, in that we can see the light at the end of the tunnel in terms of players coming back. So what I want to see, is what I think is, is an important resolution for Ten Hag for this period in in next like three or four months if we do have injuries we can't go back now to players that we've that we've tried and it hasn't worked out so unfortunately Anthony Martial it's been frustrating for both of us that Ballon d'Or close is not going to get activated unfortunately sad you're going to have to sad. go elsewhere and so it doesn't serve a what, per- what if he scores 40 goals in the second half of the season. No, no, I'm not. I wouldn't even no, at that. So no. I, I've, I've seen enough. And for Martial, it's time for him 
as well because it doesn't serve him any purpose to hang around. Now, that's just one player. You mentioned others. We all know obvious players. Now, I I, I had a caveat here mostly for McTominay and Maguire, Maguire because they've come in and done all right. I know that you've got your frustration with McTominay. He might still have a role to play in the squad, just not the role that he's been playing. That, But yeah. there are other players where you would say, well, it's terminal in terms of their career at the club, like Van der Beek. There's no point going down that system, trying that kind of again. There's no yeah. point doing the short-term loans anymore, I don't think. I think now we're getting a little bit of capital in there. The operation... The ability to operate in the transfer market with a little bit more freedom should be there. So we shouldn't have to rely on these short-term signings. So that should negate some of that impact in terms of, like, I, I don't know, the issues that we've had, the consequential issues that we've had from these players who just come in for a short-term period and, and don't really add anything, and apart from being a block. And now we've seen with players like Menu and Goru came on yesterday and Garnacho mm, getting yeah. his running the side, that those opportunities should go to the players, who are the younger players who are there as the squad. If they're not good enough, like Fernandez, bring him back off loan. If he's not good enough, he's not good enough for moving him on in the summer. But we're much better now giving those chances, even if it means changing the system about, because good grief, Ed, how much we've talked about Ten Hag not changing systems in the last three or four weeks that we'd like to see mm. him try something different. If it means because we don't have a striker, try a strikerless system, then do it. City won a title without playing a striker. I'm not saying that we could do that, but we, we might be able to operate a system that looks like it can operate rather than square square pegs in round holes. And I think that's what I want yeah. to see from us moving in that next three, four months is Ten Hag with a little bit more conviction with the safety of like, all right, it doesn't even matter for me doesn't matter if we qualify for the Champions League as long as everything else is moving in the right direction in terms of the performances are there, the team looks like a team. We, they don't look like it, like the crowd's going to get on the back every two seconds because it doesn't look like they're putting in the effort. I think we can see that they are putting in the effort. Let's not castigate them if they're not good enough. Let's give them enough time to find new places to play. We know that that relationship's breaking down with some of the some of the players, but let's just wish them well. Let's not get too frustrated about that. And let's hope that in this period of time that Ten Hag, most importantly of all, navigates this with knowing that, that he knows and he sees the same things that we know and we see. If he can see that, over, and I, I, like we don't know better than the manager. We don't know that. But you know what I'm talking about when I no. say that we're seeing, yeah, yeah. we're knowing and seeing the same kind of things. And as long as he's doing that, then we can forgive tactical mistakes we can we can forgive errors in new systems as long as we're trying things that we haven't seen before and they make sense mm-hmm. to why he's tried to to do it and if we see that okay. I, I think that's the biggest thing that i want to see from ten Hag this year. like a proper conviction of like this is what it means to play for this football club anymore and the the kind of this the sideline players that we've seen too much of that aren't going to be here for a long term and they haven't they haven't really added anything over this last 18 months that it's time to move forward and that is the direction that we seem to be moving in so as long as that yeah yeah is as long as the on-pitch direction mirrors that then i'll be happy okay that's a good that's a good resolution i mean off the pitch is kind of it's related isn't it we're going to get a new sporting director it might not happen straight away um and some kind of new infrastructure around like sporting decisions that the club 
I don't know whether that'll be in time to do stuff in the January transfer window, although I was kind of, it's kind of interesting in the filings we talked about yesterday that, that, um, Ineos have to be consulted about anything that happens before the close of this deal, that is before the Premier League approves it, which says to me there are plans in place. Why have that clause otherwise, right? So there are plans in place. We're going to get this new structure. And like the shortest term thing is to get rid of some of the players that aren't relevant to the squad, Mm -hmm. like free up some, even if it's like marginal, free up some cash. Um, And I think that may be what we're looking at in January. Obviously, Van der Beek is already going. It'll be confirmed on the 1st of January, but he's going to untrack Frankfurt. Oh, yeah, yeah. So. Is it Eintracht Frankfurt? I'm forgetting yeah, now. Yeah. I think it is. Yeah. Good Good luck to him. Maybe they'll find a club for Anthony Martial. They probably should. He's adding no value, even though we've got no strikers. And so I'd like to see that. I'm looking forward to seeing what this new sporting structure is. It will look like every other elite club. Now, how we execute, that that's a big question still. It can't be worse. It literally cannot be worse. Um, than United have done in the past. So I think that's the other resolution. Just behave like a competent club um, off the pitch um, and uh, and we'll be in a much better position. I agree with your first one on like Ten Hag's approach. He's got till the end of the season. Um, like, I just think, I think the thing that frustrated me with uh, Scott McTominay, and I'm sorry to keep bringing him up, but it's just, it's kind of emblematic. It's yeah. not beating down on him. He's got perfectly sound position like he is what he is right but it was kind of emblematic on Ten Hag giving up on what he thought he should do as a manager and it was funny that he 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 would compromise on that in like the most crucial part of the pitch but not in other parts of the pitch it was really odd and and I think it's contributed it's like you're allowed to make errors as a coach like yeah all the time Fergie didn't make many but he did make some yeah, and and through a really tough period with all these injuries, which may or may not have been contributed to by the training system. Who knows? There's some people who have said that it is through all these injuries. I think he may he you know it was a big test, and we found a lot. Thirteen defeats before Christmas, first half of the season. That's a hell of a lot. And I'm saying he'll get to the end of the season. If we get to the end of the season with 25 defeats in all competitions. He won't be here for a third season. I can pretty much guarantee that. That's just normal in football. That's not even me me saying that that should be the case. It's just normal. And so, yeah, I just want to see consistency from him and his approach. I want him to believe, show he believes in what he's trying to achieve as a North Star. He doesn't have to be Mourinho and super pragmatic. I, I want to see the balance in terms of like both the system and playing informed players. And yes, I like you and I probably 90% of supporters. I'd much rather he played a young player who it means the world to, to play. I mean, look at Kobe Mainu when he yeah. came off yesterday, giving it to the crowd or Rasmus when he scored. Yeah. Uh, or, or even Hannibal who came on and he didn't actually kick people all the time. And he played some quite mature, played into the corners. I was like, wow, you've been on the pitch for three minutes and you haven't got a bookie or try to kneecap someone. I'd much rather we play those players. Dan Gore, you know, don't know if he'll make it or not than playing players, like you said, who failed again and again and again. I think there's a template there for Ten Hag to follow. I think off the pitch, he's going to be in a much 
the club will be in a much stronger position. Ten Hag, well, we'll see. He probably has like five months to prove that he's the right man for the job. And he's probably got a zero bank of credit within, with the new partial owners, as it should be. He's got to prove himself again and again. All right. You got any personal New Year's resolutions? Yeah, I think so. Last year, I was doing quite well in terms of like a, a good sort of healthy regimen. Was going to the gym and everything like that. And then I snapped my Achilles in um, March. It's taken a long time to to get back. Like it's, I kept having setbacks with it, so I couldn't do a lot of exercise on it. So all of my good sort of fitness elements of my getting healthier and everything like that they they went out the window however norovirus which floored me i I lost a kilogram from from that so that's really put a spring in my step because i can start what (laughs) january i don't i don't recommend it i I really don't recommend uh, doing it the way that i've done it but so uh, but i can move around a lot more freely on on my um, achilles now i can exercise on it so these are the traditional thing for the early 40s not quite middle aged, but you know, approaching that sixty barrier, which is now the new middle age. Yeah, yeah. We're uh, moving out. Yeah, we yeah. definitely. Oh yeah, when you said fifty, I thought oh, I'm a bit too close to that. So we'll move it to sixty for middle age. Then yeah, for, fair enough. For those who are you planning on living to 120, are you? Or like you said, is that is that the middle middle age? That as long as your lifespan. Uh, yeah, well, it's going to take that long for my books to sell it. So um, I've got to. Oh, I've, got, I've got to stick around to see. You got a warehouse full of them, have you? The, the, yeah, exactly. That's it. If, if I'm just going to stick around long enough to clear the inventory, and then once I've done that, I can... I, I'm looking forward to your 2024 release of the Anthony Martial biography. Are you slated to do that? No, no. Is that is that coming out? I, I, I'm asking you seriously. I know you're talking about me no, doing no. it in jest. <laughs> I don't know if if the book itself no. is coming out. No, that oh, that's. God. <laughs> It would have a lot of blank pages in it, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, I'm 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 saying that in jest. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Snapping your Achilles. That's uh, as we know with Neil Webb when he did his. You sometimes never come back to to full speed, do you? So that's not good. Well, I definitely um, retired after. I can tell you that. Retired from football yeah. playing, not writing. Yeah, like I I will be writing books, just not not. Not specifically about Anthony Martial. He will feature, I guess, at some point in the future. But they will. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Yeah, I, I will do the same, like being healthy. Um, I'm going to stuff myself full of um, Manchester United chicken and uh, Salmonella will <laughs> like speed things along. Grim. Yeah, particularly grim. Uh, very, very bad. Yeah, that's another resolution. Sort the fucking catering out. What are you doing? Jesus Christ, guys. Yes, I, I will be healthy as well, and I will be looking forward to 24 with some optimism. You know, we'll see whether that's true or not. And 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 we'll continue recording these podcasts, so I think, anyway. Oh, yeah, my, my uh, resolution not. is to come on after more wins, so... Yeah, yeah. good. Yeah, do that. Yeah. Yeah. I now, you know, now that you've tied your... The success of Manchester United to your appearances on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we know that it's entirely your fault or not. Very good. Thank you, everyone. It's long pod. Uh, happy New Year. And we'll, uh, we'll catch you some point after the Forest game.